0: My stance is that I think we have to go back to living a bit like our grandparents did. They didn't travel as much. They didn't buy strawberries that were flown in from somewhere. They didn't eat food that wasn't local. Nothing was disposable. You know, nappies weren't disposable. Toothbrushes weren't disposable. So I think leather, when you have organic reared cows that don't deforest in a a regenerative farm where you can trace the skin right back to the field you've got to bear in mind soil is the thing we need to protect soil is what supports our entire system on the planet you actually need animals to turn the soil and to nourish the soil so I think that there's an argument that leather where it's properly farmed and local is actually a good thing
1: I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast Creative Conversations As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. If in doubt... Wash your hair. The words of Anya Hindmarch are both witty and profound, defining the character of a woman whose life would be considered quite a challenge, starting by creating a business at age 18. That was when she came back from Italy, carrying a handbag that was to define her life. Five children later, three inherited from her widowed husband and two of their own, Anya continues with her worldwide accessories business with dollops of fun and a CBE award from the Queen of England. Her latest amusement has been to take over a post-pandemic empty street in the Knightsbridge area of London and transform it to an Anya village. It offers the things she loves and believes in. Let's hear from the witty, wise and tirelessly energetic Anya Hindmarch, always open minded and willing to share her wide open heart. So, Anya, I I want to start by looking at the fantastical concepts for all your shows and collections. I've seen so many amazing things, but just the words are extraordinary. There's dominoes, there's a postbox maze, the um, chubby cloud beanbags that I jumped on. There was the weave project with a giant spider web that we could climb over. And there's always lots of whimsical elements and humours is making a bag for you a really fun business thing or a serious one which comes first the fun or the solidity
0: well that's a good question i always start or, or enough, i always tend to be the most successful commercially with things that start as as i would say passion more than fun But out of an idea that I I get obsessed by, I always think obsession is quite a good idea in our industry. You have to really start with an idea that just, you know, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into. So I always tend to start and work from passion. But obviously, it's a business I'm running. So um, uh, solidity and and commercial success is important. Um, But I tend to do best when I'm really passionate, genuinely passionate about ideas. I think if I start an idea... Um, to be commercial. Somehow it doesn't have much heart in it, if that makes any sense.
1: Uh, I still find it fairly amazing that you've got all this energy after so long. You really founded your business in London in 1987. You were 18 years old and you came back from a gap year in Italy with a bag. We all come back from Italy with bags. But um, it's from this particular bag that your entire business has grown into what it is today. How did you build it? One bag, Huge business. How did it happen? I come from a, a family of entrepreneurs, so I think business is um, in
0: my in my blood. I'm never sure it's nature or nurture, really, with with um, with these things. But I I have that as a backdrop. I've always been passionate, and and that really feels to me nature about what fashion is and how it makes you feel. I think that's the bit that really interests me. And I was given a bag when I was about 16, which was one of my mother's old handbags, and I remember how it made me feel the mood altering aspects of that beautiful thing i love the craftsmanship i love the materials uh, and i love as i say how it made me feel they often say actually that um an actor never gets fully into the part of the role unless he puts on the shoes of the role and i really identify with that it's funny how when i put on a different pair of shoes or wear another beautiful handbag that i i sort of it's quite mood changing and and i almost it's quite altering um so i went out to italy knowing and I was lucky to know in many ways, knowing that I absolutely wanted to work in the world of leather goods and craftsmanship. And I knew Florence was very much the home of that. So I wanted to be there and be immersed in it. And I went out really to, to learn about the factories and markets, Santa Croce, where all the skins are made, with, with really doing an Italian course for two months. And while I was there, I saw a bag that no one had in the UK, which is a beautiful drawstring duffel bag. And I thought it would sell well in 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 London, so I found a factory and had some samples made, and I brought some samples back. And I had a friend of a friend who had a stepmother who um, was working in the offers department of Harper's and Queen, as it then was, and they amazingly, really, because I was very young, but ran the offer, and we sold 500, and it made seven thousand pounds profit. And I just thought, to help with the university, I'm going to keep going, Uh, and that was really the beginning of it. Um, From there, I realized that you needed to have two collections a year, and then more collections a year, and. You needed to sell to stores and there were certain times of year when they would be uh, with open to buy budgets and other times when they weren't. You know, you had to find buying offices. I never forget being in Golden Square and going to the buying office there that represented, I think, um, Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus and, and that group and getting my first order for £30,000 and ringing my mother from the red telephone box in Golden Square going, ah! um, And, you know, it's, it's just all a learning curve. In fact, really, I think growing a business is not so much a patchwork of successes. It's actually... A patchwork of mistakes and you know I used to I then moved my production back to the UK because it was tricky to get the minimums in Italy um and I worked with amazing craftsmen here and Hackney and Hounslow and people we still work with today and um and you just find your way through and so really I think I did my education sort of on the job if you like and it grew and grew more stores stores overseas um Fashion Weeks, you know, you've you've watched it. We've we've, uh, been along it together. So, listen, it's the most fun. It's like a game of chess every day. It's exciting creatively, and that's the bit that really gets me out of bed in the morning. But I love the organisational side as well.
1: So I really love all aspects of of running a fashion business. You are calling your new fashion book a rather strange title, If in Doubt, Wash Your Hair. And with a line from um, Bloomsbury, your publisher, then says call it a manual for life about the book. Yet two events in your family life are far from light-hearted as those things sound. The way that you inherited from your husband the three children of his late wife and towards the end of the book a cancer problem of one of your children. How do you manage to turn life-threatening stories into something so enticing and enhancing? Well, I think it's important to be honest about... um
0: you know, what you get through. And I, I wanted to write this book, which is called If in Doubt, Wash Your Hair, which you'll write as a jokey title. But often um, I would do talks to women about my career or about the world I work in. And at the end, it was the, the questions about juggling and managing that were actually, that seemed to resonate the most. Um, and people would often ask me, what is your best piece of advice for a busy working woman or, or mother? And my advice would always be, if in doubt, wash your hair, which is a, a silly bit of advice. It's a kind of quick but at the same time, I think it speaks to the fact that women need to make some time to look after themselves as well as well as all the other demands that we have. and also that um, it mentions the word doubt and doubt, of course, is something that everyone from the prime minister through to all of us experiences. and I think people aren't very honest about doubt. and I think I wanted to well I wanted to write a book to um, explain how I feel about it and to hopefully, make people understand that i come to understand that doubt actually is creatively incredibly important and drives you on and keeps you grounded and keeps you um, questioning and pushing. Um, And so therefore, instead of feeling fearful of doubt, that actually we can embrace it, creative doubt is what drives me to to come up with creative solutions. Um, So I wanted to really write a book about that. I mean, life isn't easy, is it? I mean, you know, I've had a number of things. One, I chose happily, which is to inherit um, someone else's children when they were age one, three and four. And that for sure has been um, an amazing and, and busy project. Not always easy, but really, really special for me. Um, and we, we as a, a family, had a, a very tough time at one point with a child who wasn't well, who luckily is well now. But it was very frightening for quite a long time. And the point is, life isn't easy. We all know that. And I think it probably helps to understand how other people get through it. Um, for me, it's, it's quite an exposing book, honestly. It's a very, very um, first-person and honest book. But if it helps one person... Um, then it 's been worth it, and I think actually more and more it 's important um, as we get older and for me, hitting fifty was a was a mark to you know to share those those lessons the things i 've learned things i 've learned borrowed and stolen by the way, but that collection of advice that 's helped me get through. So that's really the point of the book. And I hope it it, um, resonates
1: with women. I am sure that many people have stolen things from you and will steal even more after reading the book of your wise words and your funny words. But let's talk about your skill in attracting shoppers. In 1993, you opened your first store in London's Wharton Street in Knightsbridge, behind Harrods and Harvey Nichols, very grand. And now 30 years later, you've got a new project down the road in Pont Street. In fact, it's not just a project, it's a long-held dream, you say, creating not just a village hall but a village itself, a a shopping village where you can get your hair done in the um, salon and shampoo therapy and have a cake and bun in your cafe and all these things, Anya, the idea of a bespoke store and a plastic store even. What is this experience that you created for our post-pandemic world? We can go shopping all the time. It's interesting. I think everyone who is in
0: retail is thinking, what next? And I think that there are times in life when things substantially change, when, you know, horses and carts um, suddenly had to face the fact that cars arrived. And and there are significant shifts that that happen that, that, you know, you have to embrace rather than avoid and ignore. Um, and the same with, I'm sure, you know, when machine guns were invented, then probably the people who were making swords were feeling a bit sort of worried, so I think retail is in one of these moments, um, you know, what is the purpose of retail in a digital world, and in a post-pandemic world, I think it's quite important, and, you know, we had a business that had at one point 60 stores around the world, and we still have a number of stores around the world, but I feel more and more, and this is more of a sort of a, a pull, like a magnetic pull for me, a sort of instinctive pull, that I I want to go back to Localization, almost over-globalisation, I think this is tied very much into the challenges we have on climate as well, that, uh, and post-pandemic, I sort of feel that, you know, I've been so lucky to travel so much, but perhaps that doesn't feel quite so appropriate anymore, and that word globalisation has been pretty much the backdrop to my entire career. So I wanted to really focus on Back to My Roots, which is um, my first ever ground floor store was on Pont Street. And we still have a really beautiful one of my favorite stores, which is the Bespoke Store. I always tease my team and say when I die, like some of my ashes spread in the store, which always really freaks them out. But um, the idea that actually we have a, a huddle of stores, I think there's five stores uh, and a little cafe where people can come and touch the brand, ingest the brand. Meet us. We'll be there. We can change it every three minutes if we want. I can be there the whole time. I felt a certain amount of frustration and it didn't feel incredibly authentic, frankly, to, to be talking to the team in my Singapore store where I hadn't met the, the, the person who was running the store. They hadn't perhaps had quite the same in-person training. Um, We were doing window schemes which we had to adapt for 60 windows and sometimes the climate was completely different and it just didn't feel very authentic and I think I want to go back to those days when I used to go to Paris and find that amazing spectacle maker who actually I could only find in Paris. Um, And I would go there and and have my my glasses made once a year or every two years. And it was special. It had a story. And I also think that, you know, brand is such an overused word. I think that we should replace the word brand with behavior. That's what matters. And I think also that um, we need to, to go back to experience and stories. I think that, you know, in a way, luxury, again, is an overused word. Actually, what matters is the story. I have this watch because actually it came from my grandfather and he bought it in Paris on a holiday we spent together or... I had the suitcase made and it's particularly big because my shoes are really long or you know, this has a particular memory. For me, that's what luxury is. It's not the same thing that you can buy in every city um, and the same thing as everyone else. So it's really just trying to go back to what feels right for me. And this is a very personal journey. So essentially, we've got these, these five stores, um, the bespoke store where you can have things made, specially made, you have your handwriting embossed or anything you can draw embossed into the leather, secret messages and pockets, really, really special um, store for gifting. Um, We have a plastic store, which is um, dedicated to my passion for um, abolishing single-use plastic and the circularity of materials. Um, We have a a label store, which is dedicated to my absolute obsession with the art of organisation. We have the cafe, and then we also have what we're calling the village hall, which is a a store that is forever changing and that starts with a little pop-up hair salon where we're offering as you said shampoo and therapy which is exactly what I feel like I need after lockdown (laughs) Um, and it's to celebrate sort of COVID safe way of celebrating the book launch and people are booking in as groups really mainly to um, with their girlfriends to have a delicious cocktail or coffee and have their hair wash and have a bit of a lovely massage and and just you know just a nice thing so that's the point of it it's just really what I want to do creatively it's sort of
1: scratching an itch and yeah this sounds so enticing to anyone will you take this idea abroad to your stores I, I understand what you mean when you say you don't have a close relationship with some of them and so it's difficult perhaps to make them understand the idea but but it's possible isn't it that the village idea could go beyond London?
0: It is. And in fact, chatting to our teams in Tokyo and and Hong Kong, they're like, bring it, bring it. But I'm I'm not sure, Susie, I want to. I I feel it it doesn't... I I think, and this is early days, I want to launch the village and really be there. I want, to, I want it to be authentic. I want to be in there every day. I want to be sitting in the cafe. I want to be changing the windows myself and dreaming up projects. I'd actually quite like to work in the shops if I had a chance, which I probably won't. But um, I think we can take elements of it to different parts of the world and work with partners, be that Isatan in Tokyo, be that Lane Crawford in Hong Kong, be that all the best partners in the world, and do animations and, 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 and fun projects with them that might extend that. We obviously have the digital side of our business, which is, we're aggressively growing and is incredibly efficient for people who want to Um, you know have a really quick uh, engagement with the brand and 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 also you can have all this of amazing storytelling you can have digitally but I don't know if I want to have a village in different places yet I think I want it to really be properly authentic and just be a London place fun place to visit but you know we'll see that's my plan.
1: Well I must say you really are a dynamic woman who um, looks like you can do anything and everything and um, you should feel Proud about that because I know that none of it is easy. Just tell me what the future is in your eyes or in your dreams. Do you now plan completely to own your own brand? So um, we had a, we've had several very um, happy and successful
0: investor partners, and we sold a bit of the business and and took an investment. And when I the last um, time I did that, I actually moved my role. I was previously being CEO and creative officer, and I actually realised I was. Doing so much and five children and travelling, and I wasn't getting enough to the product. So we um, simultaneously brought in um, our first external um, CEO. Um, and several years later, whilst that was in, in, in a really helpful and, and, and fascinating, and I learned loads, several years later, I realized that actually I like running my own business. Um, so um, we bought back the business and I returned back to the CEO and creative role uh, two years ago now with partners, amazing partners. So it's not fully my business, but um, it's with really, really happy situation. And it's allowed me really, I think, to pursue my dreams, really, to do what feels uh, right for me. And I, I love, I think when you put together your team of people, it's like putting together a really fun group for dinner you know it's it's, a, it's an amazing privilege and i i, I wanted to run uh, my people and my teams myself so i'm back in my happy place um, which is which is really nice I feel very lucky
1: It's one thing we none of us can be in charge of, and that was this terrible pandemic that settled down on us. Are you coming into the light from a year of darkness, which is, I think, uh, the way a lot of people feel? Or are things more complicated when you have to pick up bits of your business and um, everybody is saying that it's tough, it's really tough?
0: Well they always say, I mean there's nothing good about this pandemic for anyone and, and it's been so hideous uh, as we know, but they always say never waste a good crisis and as I say good is a word in inverted commas because there's nothing good, but I think it's important to to focus on what you can do. We had quite a productive time actually because it allowed me to do some thinking, to sort of step off the the conveyor belt, which moves pretty fast in our industry as (laughs) no one knows better than you, Um, and to actually take stock a bit and realise, I think that our timetables, which is something we've been talking about for a very long time, don't suit our business and don't terribly suit our customer. So we used this time, um, one sort of good benefit was using this time to rearrange our timetables. So if you remember, the sales used to be the January sales. And what happened is the sale moved into December because certain stores, I think, probably were trying to beat their last year's figures and move that big lump of sales that normally happen in January just over to the end of December which that was probably the reason for doing it, which of course then meant that then it bled a little bit earlier. And as people weren't doing well and because retail was having a tougher time, people were moving those dates and they actually became November and were starting to sort of merge with Black Friday. What happens normally is you want winter clothes delivered in September. That's when you come out from your holiday and you want to buy your lovely winter coat. But if you're going on sale in November, that gives two months on the shop floor. So therefore what was happening is our wholesale partners were asking for deliveries actually in earlier and earlier, including up to May. So we were then delivering winter collections in May um, because they were going on sale in November. So all the systems were just nuts, honestly. And of course, also, you're having your busiest period for us, which is your margin-rich period, which should be in November, December for Christmas presents, actually on discount. So actually, in a way, the industry was spiralling into a really unhealthy situation. So we've been talking about doing this for ages. It's very hard to work with so many wholesale partners, but we decided just if we're ever going to do this, now is the moment. So we just did it. So we've actually moved all of our sale dates back to January and back to July from May. And we've moved all of our deliveries accordingly. We talked to all of our partners who supported us. We actually decided for Black Friday not to have any discounting, but to donate all of our profits to charity, to an environmental charity. We had the biggest sales on that weekend. It was unbelievable. So I actually think we have to sort of start to look at it with fresh eyes. So the COVID for us was, whilst horrible in so many ways, a good time to actually take stock and to do some brave thinking and to look again. So that was a really big advantage for us. In addition, it gave me personally some really good time to put both feet into the digital world because normally, as you know, because we do it together, we're on the plane all the time. We're rushing to fashion weeks and selling and I'm in Tokyo and I'm in Japan, I'm in New York and it's go, 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 go. Whereas I was seeing, you know, the digital side of the business the day before it went out, whereas now I'm involved completely upstream on every layer of every bit of content. Um, and I feel much more connected. And therefore, if you focus your energy on things, that's where ten, things tend to do well. So it, it, we had lots of silver linings, I would say. Um, the team are amazing, um, really amazing. Everyone really pulled together. We did some really good projects for um, for the NHS, which was very happy making, frankly. And um, and I, I hope we're we'll, we're coming up with this village and some strong creative ideas that we're excited about. So, you know, I, I, I hope that my small little part of, of, of this world, um, you know, will come out smiling, if, if not slightly blinking, but um, that we will kind
1: of pull through. I, I feel that two things that are very much in your um, area is um, personalisation and bespoke. And actually, that's been at the forefront of what you've done, putting your name on something rather than mine, so that somebody who is buying from you is feeling that it's not necessarily on their own label, as it were. And it's such a massive business in retail now, but everything is personalised now. You did this very early, but... Now we've gone as far as providing a sort of in-store craftsman who can change things while you wait. Would you say that you bridge craftsmanship, functionality and a way for people to express themselves, that you engage in all three and so that women really can have a choice? Well, I
0: really hope so. I think, I mean, if someone asked me what three words matter to you in your business and I'm so against strap lines. I think, as I said earlier, for me, behaviour is more important than you know, those sort of straplines. But fashion with purpose, for me, um, are three very important words and purpose I think also is about memories isn't it I love that lovely expression which is um, memories are the thing that give you roses in December and I'm of course misquoting that but it, it's sort of true and for me the bespoke um, personalization era of the business is making lovely presents that get handed down the generation so if you make a beautiful leather box and it has um you open the lid and on the inside of the lid we print a lovely family photograph onto the silk lining and on the outside of the box all the children sign in their signatures you can never go back and get a three-year-old to write in three-year-old's handwriting you know you're sealing a moment in time which for me is really rather more important than a season in fashion i think those things matter and those presents which last have you know they have more meaning and they also they're more sustainable frankly so i think that we all need to really think about how we spend our precious money and really do it responsibly. And things that I'm such a believer in gifting and beautiful things. That's, that's what we do. And I, I also think that um, we need to support all these industries. Uh, there's nothing uh, more important than actually employment. And, um, and you know, we don't want to stop spending, but we need to spend responsibly. But those things, and that's why I love Little Village. And the funny way, the village is like a department store, and each store is a different department. There are lots of different areas to our brand, but they they sort of seem to hold
1: together through through a thread in the middle in your bright sunshine yellow book, there is a lot of personal things that it is quite surprising that you're prepared to share with them and share with us, but it obviously you can read immediately that you it's not that you care as much about your children as about your work, but so much more that's so much part of your life. And it's quite something to be looking after and seeing five children grow up. How has it really been? A lot of women will totally feel that this is their life also, that somehow the children are always there. And as you say at one point in the book, you know, at the crucial moment when there's, you're just signing on some fantastic deal, it turns out to be the um, week when all the um, school events are happening and you have to divide yourself between them. What is that? What, what is that part of your life? I think I call it a struggle. (laughs) Um,
0: I mean, you know, the thing is, you you juggle. I mean, I I obviously passionately love my family, passionately also love my, my work family too. So you have to navigate your way through. And I think that um, I've talked a lot in the book about various little um, sort of coping mechanisms of how to, you know, to manage all of that, you know, and, and how communication is really important. I talk about, for example, um, a system I came up with when we had a very important board meeting on a, a Tuesday. But I have one of my children home who's just finished his exams and it was his half term and he was desperate to go and you know, have a really good time late into the evening, into the morning. And um, I came up with a system or well, he came up with a system actually called Beat the Clock, where I would set my alarm for the agreed curfew, which might be quite late. And they had to be, he had to be back before it went off to turn it off in my bedroom, which means that therefore I had a checkpoint so that you know I didn't wake up at seven in the morning and realize he'd been in an and for four hours. Um, and he knew he was toast if he didn't make it back in time. Um, so it's trying to find little systems that actually disturb your sleep as little as possible that allow them what they need to, to do. And of course, us to continue with what we need to do from a sort of work perspective. So there's lots of really honest little tips like that. Um, it's very hard, I think, juggling a family and working. I think things are changing a lot. I think that um, I had a wonderful kind of, you know, checkmate moment when I was asked for my first paternity leave. Um, And as a woman, an office mainly full of women, I, um, you always have sort of two thoughts when you have someone requesting maternity, like, wonderful, wonderful news, but also like, Jesus, how are we going (laughs) going to get through this? Um, Which of course we always do. But then when you suddenly get your first um, male employee asking for leave as well, it really was like a, ah. Um, But actually you suddenly realise that when men are, and I say this in the nicest possible way, as inconvenient in the workplace as women, uh, as I'm saying as a mother of five, but it is inconvenient to have people taking breaks. um, Actually then it's much more equal. And then if you're in an interview and you're choosing between a man and a woman, actually they're very equal. So lots of things are happening, including, for example, the gender um, pay gap. Um, you know, all those things are making a massive difference I think to equality in the workplace and probably making it therefore easier for women probably but I, I think there is this transition generation that has been our generation where we've been working probably as hard as our fathers worked whilst also feeling we need to live up to the, the roles that our mother, um, that we experienced through our mothers and that's quite tough and, and if we're not careful the people that suffer probably are us um, but it's changing, it's changing I can see it changing in my kids
1: There's something else I have to talk about, which is leather. There seems to be now a lot of talk and really serious talk, not just um, a few companies, but many companies now are looking for ways to present um, what you do, basically handbags, but not always relying on leather. How do you feel about that?
0: Well, it's a really interesting subject and one that I'm digging into a lot. When we did the um, I Am A Plastic Bag project recently, which is the bag made up of recycled materials, I had assumed that I would use recycled leather to kind of stay within the project, but when I dug down into it, recycled leather is basically mashed up all bits of leather, but mixed together in a sort of a soup of plastic, so it's basically just plastic, so, um, and it's the same with vegan leather, vegan leather is, is pretty much just plastic. There are some interesting new materials, mushroom leather and um, pineapple leather and various different things, which are super interesting, they're not quite what I think we would want to wear at the moment, but there's, it's, it's really moving in, in, in fast, which is exciting. But actually, I, I've done a lot of reading around the subject, a lot of talking to people um, who know an awful lot more than me. And actually, my sense at the moment is that we need to also apply common sense. And I think there's quite a lot of that missing in these conversations. Even with experts, actually, you admit that no one quite knows the answer. But actually, I, my stance is that I think we have to go back to living a bit like our grandparents did which is they didn't travel as much. They didn't buy strawberries that were flown in from somewhere. They didn't eat food that wasn't local. It, it was much more about this localization piece. Again, common sense. There wasn't anything that had the word disposable attached to it. Nothing was disposable. You know, nappies weren't disposable. You know, toothbrushes weren't disposable. So I think leather, when you have organic reared cows that don't deforest in a, in a regenerative regenerative farm... Um, where you can trace the skin right back to the field and where the you've got to bear in mind soil is the thing we need to protect soil is what supports our entire system on the planet so we need to protect soil and you actually need animals to turn the soil and to nourish the soil so I think that there's an argument that leather where it's properly farmed and local is actually a good thing Um, and it's a really interesting and very live debate this at the moment but I think that you know vegan leather plastic and mixing up things with plastic it's not to me it's not common sense I think we need to go back and just live a bit
1: more sort of gently. When anyone talks about you, your clients, your family, your friends, and certainly me, they say one thing. How do you do it all, Anya? How do you do it all? What's your answer? I've got you in front of me now. I'm going to make you apply. Well, really badly, Susie, is the truth. Really badly.
0: Um, you know, I have an amazing team, honestly. And, you know, we often say and we laugh when we do a big project. And, for example, I remember Chubby Hearts Over London, which was a big and complex project. We flew these 29, you know, heart-shaped healing balloons the size of double-decker buses. And it was really an amazing project. We look back at the team and I afterwards and kind of went, whose idea was it? And the truth is, it's it's a mishmash. It sort of starts with one idea and then it, that, we can't do that and that's too expensive and that won't work. And and so it, it actually it's a sort of this wonderful sort of melange of, of, of ideas and problem solving. So I think how do we do it? It's great teamwork, a great group of people. Um, we're passionate um, and, uh, and we don't give up. Maybe it's that we don't give up.
1: And great attitude from your family, I'm sure, from your husband and to the, the five children, because they must also um, feel very proud of what you've done, but also you must put a lot of time into your work. And, of course, I know that your children now have uh, all more or less grown up. Um, But even so, that they have been part of it, have they not? Uh, Completely. I mean, I think... I'm not sure about Proud, maybe more annoyed most of the time. You know, we're a
0: completely normal family. Um, I have to say, the kids were very sweet about the book, actually. They really helped me with that because it was, you know, it was very personal to them as well. Um, and um, my daughter helped me. I got really stuck on one chapter, and she's brilliant at this, and she helped me actually find my way through. My eldest, who's a lawyer, he um, helped me look at it and kind of go, this wouldn't be appropriate to say, and kind of checked all the way through. So it was very much a sort of team effort. They're great. They're really great. They're, they're, I mean, I'm lucky to have inherited three three brilliantly bright children and given birth to two um, sort of creative nutters. So it's a, it's a really, uh,
1: it's, a, it's a great mix and I feel incredibly lucky, actually. And what do you do when, like this morning, when we're face to face and your hair looks utterly beautiful, what do you do when you might be in doubt, but you can't wash your hair because you've already washed it? What's the next thing you can do to bring your life together? You know, a really good walk actually. Walk and
0: girlfriends. As I get older, I realise that girlfriends matter a huge amount. And people always think that in our industry that, you know, it's a sort of bitchy, girly kind of industry. It's not. We're all really good friends, aren't we? I mean, I say that the three of us looking on the screen now. I mean, it's a really lovely thing how collaborative women are, how supportive women are. And I genuinely rely on my girlfriends. And I walk um, three, four times a week with girlfriends, one in particular I've walked with for 13 years. Um, And actually that time to think, chat, you know sort of worry cry whatever it takes um is really important to me that's sort of my magic hour in the morning which I'm I'm always
1: very sad if I miss I have a vision of you in the morning you've got up you've prepared breakfast for everybody you've made prepared a cake which is in the oven as you set out and go for a walk and um, at the end of this hour-long walk with your friend you then go to uh, your office where you do everything and by the time you come back I would be dead with exhaustion (laughs) okay can I just correct you I can't even boil an egg Susie My hair looks terrible in the morning and I look, I'm still in my pyjamas when I walk around the the park. But that's fine. I've made peace with that. (laughs) I salute you for saying that, not that I believe a word of it. And thank you so much for talking about it all. If in doubt, wash your hair. I'm straight off to do it now. (laughs) Lots of love. Anya, what an amazing revelation of your heart and your mind and your products. I feel I've read your own diaries of your life, good times and tougher times, but always handled with grace and marked by your love of friends and family. I so enjoyed talking to you and reading your book with your frank discussion of the family, the panic of your eldest son's illness and the way you live now. What a story. What a book. Time to wash my hair. Join me next time when I shall be speaking to New York Princess of the Wrap Dress Diane from Fürstenberg. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just head to the iTunes to rate and review. I do love to hear your comments. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, Music by Jörg Zuber, Graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit suzymenkis.com and suzymenkis on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.